Well, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we want to look at our text this morning, beginning in verse 12 to 20. We've done some study in this chapter already, but uh, we're not going to finish it by any means today, but uh, we will be in the coming weeks. I'm reminded of an illustration. All the way back in 1908, there was a coach by the name of, they called him Pop Warner. His name was Glenn Scobie Warner. And he was probably one of the all-American finest college coaches. He coached for the University of Georgia, uh, Iowa Agricultural College, uh, Cornell, Carlisle, Pittsburgh, Stanford, Temple University. He compiled a career college record of winning games. He had 319 wins. And uh, predating Bear Bryant and others, uh, he had the most wins of any coach in college football history. He came up with things like the three-point stance that now we just think is normal. Well, he invented that whole thing. So he really predates uh, a lot of what goes on in football today. And they called him Pop, and we know that today... There's a program called Pop Warner Football, and that's who it's uh, honoring, is this man. And he was a good coach, a really good coach. But he wasn't above bending the rules um, to his advantage when he could. Uh, Before the game, back in 1908, when Syracuse was playing Carlisle, he had one of the managers one of the moms that took care of a lot of the uniforms, she said, I, he said, I want, to do, I want you to do something for me before the game that morning. She said, sure. He goes, I want you to paint this image of this football on the front of everybody's jersey. Um, now, it wasn't against the rules back then to do that. And so everybody, when they came out on the field, had what looked like a football on the front of them. So the other team wouldn't know who really had the ball was the idea. And it actually worked. And there was no written rule against this. But it really violated all principles of fairness. I mean, that's something you shouldn't do. And I share that illustration with you for one reason. I believe that, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians today who wish that the Bible contained specific rules governing every possible situation in our lives. Then they think, if if that were possible, that we would know what to do in every possible situation as a Christian in this world. Um, They would know what they could do, and they would know what they could not do. Well, obviously, a book like that would be too big to read. So most of us would still be in the dark because we wouldn't take the time to read it. Uh, God has, however, given us a book, the Bible, that contains... Not rules and regulations, but principles that we need to be able to live for him here in this world. And in this verse that we'll look at this morning, these verses 12 to 20, all the way through basically chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to lay out for us some very, very important principles that we can apply as Christians And he lays them out for the Corinthian believers. 
Now, he's writing to this church in Corinth, and we know the background of it. They're very immature Christians. So much so, he calls them true babes in Christ. He tells them that in chapter 3, verse 1. They're just babies in Christ. And that speaks to their immaturity. He reminds them that like little children, they think there is a rule for everything. If you've ever watched children play, before long, someone's going to yell out these words. That's not, what, fair. That's not fair. And kids, by the way, love rules. They need rules, but they love rules. They love them. They really do. Now, a lot of times they love them because they like to break them, but they love them. And as children grow up and become old enough to leave their home, their parents, we lay out all kinds of rules for them to go by, to live by. But when they are grown, you don't want to keep on having to tell your child every little thing to do or don't do. By then they should have, what, established Not a bunch of rules, but they should have established what? Life principles, right? Some principles to live by. And by doing so, they will know how to respond in pretty much any situation. Now, next week, we're going to look at this text more fully. So this is more of an introductory uh, message to this whole text. But next week, we're going to be looking at powerful principles for proper practice in our Christian lives. It's going to give us a standard that God gives us by which we should live by. And those principles, if we practice them, will teach us how to live our life uh, and really respond to any questionable activity or any questionable situation we may find ourselves in. As we grow in Christ, we need to be really liberated from the legalism of rules. We need to be liberated from the legalism of of rules and learn to apply biblical principles to our life so that we know how to live. So we don't have to have someone following us around telling us what to do and what not to do. And really, when you think about it, with children, with people growing up, the ability to make decisions wisely is what? It's a mark of true maturity. When someone makes wise decisions, you say, that's a mature person. So these aren't rules. These are lessons that we're going to be looking at, especially next week, for every Christian that would learn them and practice them would do well in life. But in this section here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, Paul presents for us a Christian's perspective, you could say, on morality. On morality. And, and that's really what he's doing. He's dealing with some very uh, specific things. And I entitled the message, Your Body, God's Temple, for a purpose. And Paul addresses some very practical, he addresses some very uh, ac- applicable truths when it comes to the Christian's liberty in Christ. We often think of Christianity as sometimes something that is limiting, something that is constricting, something that is burdensome. When it comes to living our Christian lives. And a lot of people 
do not and will not come to Christ for that very reason. They say, I don't want somebody telling me what to do. <laughs> I don't want some book telling me what rules to follow, what, and that's their mentality. And they sense and they believe that the Christian life is a life of continuous self-denial and Puritan prudeness, especially when it comes to our sexuality. And so Paul has to address this here in this text. And to be honest with you, some Christians don't help present the proper biblical view on human sexuality. They would view sexual relations as something that is to be used for procreating children and nothing more. Definitely not something God gifted us to enjoy within the confines of marriage. So they present a very restrictive, a very uh, constrictive view of human sexuality. It's just for having kids, that's it. Now, there is some truth to the fact that the Christian life is a life of self-denial, right? Jesus taught that. It's a life of humility. However, there is also a tremendous, a tremendous amount of freedom to be had in the Christian's life. We don't just live our lives following a bunch of rules, And the Apostle Paul emphasizes this truth, the truth of freedom in Christ, all over the place in his writings. One is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and also in verse 13. He wrote this to the Galatians. They were having some issues in this area of practicing their Christianity. And some of them were actually diverting back to their old practices before they were a Christian. Legalistic practices. And he says, for freedom, in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of what? Slavery. Jump all the way down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. See, we have to be careful. There has to be a balance. There's some people today that it's grace, 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 and I can go out and do whatever I want because all my sins are forgiven. So it doesn't matter what I do. That was kind of a view of the Corinthian church at the time. Most of them in the Corinthian church. They had a lot of issues going on. In Romans chapter 8, verse 21, he rejoiced in that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtained the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you understand that we have freedom in Christ? It's not just a a religion you pour a bunch of ashes on your head and go around in sackcloth, woe is me, I'm a Christian now, I can't have any fun. I think that's what some Christians believe. Romans 6, 14, Paul says that we are not under the law, but under what? Under grace. We're not saved by works. I'll say this, we're not even kept by works. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a what? It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that you may boast. So many people want to do something to come to Christ. Just tell me what I have to do. Well, if you want to be real biblical about it, there's nothing you can do. If you want to be really, really biblical about it, we tell people, oh, you know, you need to repent of your sins. Do you know that somebody can't repent of their sins unless God grants them repentance? 
That's what the New Testament says. Our salvation is a work of God, beloved. It's not our work. Even in Romans 7, verse 6, he says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Everybody says, oh, free will, free will, free will. We don't have a free will. We never had a free will. Before you were in Christ, you were what? Held captive to the law. You were a slave to sin. And after we come to Christ, what are we? We are a slave to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't make choices. We do. But in the sense of having a completely free will, our will is tainted by sin, so therefore it is not free. Having died to that which held us captive, he says, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, there's a lot of Christians today that just want a bunch of do's and don'ts. And they carry it around like it's their little constitution law book. And, oh, that person's not doing this. They must not be a Christian. And they make all these judgments based on people's behavior. And I want to ask them, do you think that your behavior saves you? Because that's not true. That's not biblical. God's grace alone saves us. And it's God's grace alone that keeps us saved. We looked at Last week, at the end of, there in verses 9 through 11, he talked about such were some of you, but you were what? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are justified, past tense. That means we're made righteous, we're counted righteous and holy in God's sight. We see that in Romans chapter 4, verses 22 to 25. Paul writes, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our what justification. Justification means that God looks at you, and even though you're a sinner, he justifies you. He declares you righteous. Not based on something you've done, but based on what? Based on something Christ has done for you on the cross. And when you come to Christ, and you come to the cross, and you bow your knee, and you say, Lord, there's nowhere else for me to go. I need a Savior, and you're the only one still standing. I want to yield my life to you. I want to turn from my sin and give my life to you. then you are declared righteous in his sight. In Romans 8.33, it says, Who, therefore, will bring a charge, an accusation, you might say, against God's elect? There's a lot of people that do that. Have you ever been charged with something when you know you didn't do anything? It says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? He says, God is the one who justifies. In other words, whether they charge you or not, it's irrelevant. God declares you righteous. God declares you holy. Do you understand that a Christian can commit no sin that is not already covered by God's grace? If you are in Christ, it doesn't, 
you can, there's no sin that you can commit that will override God's grace. I don't know about you, that helps me sleep at night. No sin can forfeit our salvation. None. No accusation can succeed against a brother or sister in Christ. Why? Because God is the highest court. He's already said who's righteous. And he has declared that believers in Christ are righteous. There's no higher appeal. There's no word. It's like going to the Supreme Court. When they speak, that's it. You can't say, well, I'm going to go to the local court now. No, it doesn't work that way. They're the highest court in the land. And when they decide and settle an issue, that's it. Whether it's right, wrong, indifferent. There's nowhere else to go. And the Corinthian church had been taught this over and over and over by Paul. But you know what? They were using it as a theological excuse for their sin. They ignored the truth. Galatians 5.13 says, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. A lot of Christians do this. They turn their freedom in Christ into an opportunity for the flesh. And when Paul spoke of Christian freedom, it was always, always in relation to freedom from works, righteousness. In other words, it was speaking of being free from the idea that you can earn your salvation by good deeds. Some wanted to practice the Mosaic law, thinking somehow that would make them more holy and more righteous. And if they just kept enough of the law, God would grant them righteousness. Well, that's not true. The the Pharisees thought tradition was the way to go. So they were constantly quoting their traditions. And there's other people that try all kinds of other things. Religiosity, coming to church, taking communion, being baptized. Any of those works will not save you. See, and the Corinthians had perverted this truth to justify the life of immorality they were living. They really used the same argument that Paul previously used in the book of Romans In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, remember when we went through Romans, we spoke of this. Paul says, what shall we say then, speaking of God's grace and being so abundant? He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? See, some people believe that. They think, well, God's gracious, so I'm just going to go live it up in the world. That's not going to work out very well for you. Because the Bible also says that there's a God in heaven who loves you too much to allow you to do that. And you know what? He will discipline you. won't punish you, but he will discipline you. I don't know about you, but I don't like discipline. Never liked it as a kid. I don't like it now. Not many of us do. Not many of us go, I can't wait to be disciplined. No. That's not something that a lot of us enjoy. And they pretended to have this theological justification for living any way they wanted. If you look at verse 13, it's kind of implied here. I mean, it's almost like a philosophical argument. It says, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. (laughs) What's that mean? See, a lot of Greek philosophies considered everything physical, everything, including your own body, to be basically evil and has no value whatsoever, so it really doesn't matter what happens to it. What was done with or to the body, it didn't matter. And so what he's saying here is food 
was food. The stomach was the stomach. Sex is sex. Doesn't matter. Sex was just a biological function, just like eating. To be used just as food would be used to satisfy their fleshly appetites. That sounds kind of like what we hear today, isn't it? Sounds similar to what we hear in our society today. Like many people today, the Corinthian Christians were rationalizing their sinful thinking and their sinful habits. And Paul addresses this over in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 1. He addresses this very clearly. Just turn there quickly. I mean, Romans 1 is kind of like watching the morning news or, you know, looking at the morning news on the, on the internet or whatever. I mean, that's what it's like. But I want you to just focus on verses 28 to 32. If you read Romans 1, it's, it's reading like a modern-day treatise on what people were doing today. But in verse 28, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. That's today, isn't it? People keep on coming up with new ways to sin. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And look at what it says in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that. They not only do them, and this is our society today, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's the day and age we live in. They were clever. The Corinthians were clever, just like people today are clever at coming up with seemingly good reasons for doing wrong things. I mean, back then they lived in a society just like we live in a society today that's notoriously immoral. A society that in, back then they had temple prostitution. They had women at the temple for prostitution. They glorified promiscuous sex. I mean... It was so common to have sex with a prostitute in the city of Corinth that the practice came to be called Corinthianizing. (laughs) If you were Corinthianizing, that meant you were having an adulterous relationship with a prostitute. Many believers had formerly been involved in this, especially in Corinth. And it was hard for them to break their old ways. And so what happened was they came to Christ, some of them, and, but they began to fall back into their old ways. And this stuff began to creep into the church. And just as it was hard for them, as we read earlier in the book of Corinthians, for them to give up their love for human wisdom and worldliness and pride and their divisive spirit, they got to the point where they were suing each other. They were suing people. People in the church were suing each other maliciously, not even for credible reasons, just to gain more money. They were setting each other up. 
Well, it was also hard for them to give up their sexual immorality. So with that as our introduction, let's read our text for this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, or verses 12 to 22. I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read it this morning, if you're able. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of Of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own Body, And this is a verse I want to focus on this morning. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So therefore glorify God in your body. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that your spirit would enable us to understand the words of your, this text here before us, apply them to our lives. Speak truth to the hearts of your people today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now remember, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We looked at verses 1 to 11. And Paul reminded us not to forget what we were saved from. He gave us a laundry list of all these sinful practices and behaviors. And then in verse 11, he closes out and he says, before you get too big-headed, before you get to feeling too righteous, self-righteous, he says, and such were some of you, after the list of those people who would not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, don't get up on your high spiritual horse and look down at all those sinners. And so many times that can happen in the life of a believer. It seems that the longer we're saved, the less contact we have with unbelievers. They forget that at one time in their lives, they were unbelievers. They were unbelievers who hated God and hated Christ. They were individuals who did their own thing. They looked out for number one, themselves, and and they would trample over anyone who would dare get in their way to self-fulfillment and satisfaction. We forget that at one time in our lives, someone stopped and was patient enough and caring enough and compassionate enough to love us just the way we were and to share the life-changing message of the gospel of Christ with us. We forget all that. And so the longer we're a Christian over time, what happens is we stop hanging around with such people, those 
infidels, those unbelievers. Now, the Bible does warn us to be careful about the company we keep as Christians, the people we fellowship with. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when we get there, we'll see in verse 33, Paul says, hey, bad company ruins good morals. Don't be deceived. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And that's not just speaking of marriage. I think it includes marriage. But it speaks of a lot of ways. And see, therefore many believe to be a Christian means that you're to lose all association with unbelievers. There's people in the church that believe that today. That's the wrong interpretation of what Paul is saying. Paul is not telling us not to have unbelieving friends. But he's saying, do not join together with unbelievers in their practices, in their lifestyle, in their worldview. In other words, the yoking together means to join with them in their lifestyle, in their belief system. In other words, become like them. He's saying, don't do that. But he's not saying that we should not have unbelieving friends. I think it grieves the very heart of God the way Christians and even churches today have become a a subculture onto themselves. As Christians, beloved, we should have unbelieving friends. But sometimes we do and we say things as believers that an unbeliever just, they can't identify with. It's impossible for them to even identify with. I want to share just a a quick clip, just a little video clip of Christian comedian sharing this, uh, illustrating this for us. So go ahead and show the clip real quick. All right, time to eat. Let's do it. Thanks for bringing your buddy over for dinner. Thanks for having me, guys. Let's pray. Yeah. No, I was going to suggest that pray before we eat and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Take your hat off. You may take my hat off for the prayer or just the meal or. Thank you. Hats off. Okay, let's pray. We close our eyes. Oh, you want me to close my eyes too? Okay, bro, you told me about none of this, but all right, eyes closed, hat off. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I knew that. You want my phone for? Uh, we hold hands. Oh, you okay? We hold hands. You're one of these families. We hold okay, hands. Yeah, nice, absolutely. I saw this in a painting one time. Okay, let's do it. Our Father, who art in heaven. Thank you for the food. No. Oh, seriously, no. really? Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> now, I'm not saying we lower our standards just to entertain unbelievers. I'm not saying that at all. And, and you know my heart on that. But we have to be careful. We can't just assume that everybody speaks our language. We can't just assume that everybody shares our values. Let me give you four reasons, and these aren't in your, or yes, it is actually. They are in your outline. Um, Four reasons why Christians should be intentional 
about having friends that do not know Christ. First of all, they're sick and in need of hope. This is what the Bible describes people without Christ. Today, more than ever, we live in a world of hopelessness. I mean, just look around. You can see it on every corner. People today are searching for something to believe in. They just don't know what, and they don't know where to go to get it. And unfortunately, the religious leaders of Christ's day had this philosophy of, let's call it, pagan friend shedding. In other words, if you're religious, you wouldn't even talk to a pagan person, someone who's not following your religious rules and regulations. And so when they saw our Lord Jesus Christ eating and drinking with sinners or unbelievers, in other words, rather than unfriending them, he was friending them, he was befriending them, they began, what, to look down on him. Christ responded in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, and he told them this, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are what? Sick. Sick. They're spiritually sick. And many Christians today, unfortunately, would be like the religious leaders, and they look down upon Christ for giving hope to someone who is sick. Secondly, they keep our faith real. I mean, a lot of us have been Christians for so long, we don't even know what it's like to live in a world outside of Christianity. We have no idea. Our terminology, our thought pattern can quickly turn into what what people call folk theology. (laughs) Folk theology. What is that? Folk theology is having a practice or a belief and not knowing why you have it or what it even means. You may have quaint little Christian sayings, Christian cliches, Christianese, if you will. But if someone were to challenge you, what do you mean by that? You wouldn't know what to say. You would be at a loss. And in exclusively Christian circles, you may be able to get away with saying things like, oh, the Spirit moved. But an unbeliever is going to say, well, well, what is that? What are you talking about? What exactly does it mean the Spirit moved? Do you, do you understand what that means? So having unbelieving Christians or unbelieving friends excuse me, unbelieving friends, or unbelieving Christians for that matter. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians that aren't. But having unbelieving friends keeps us real. Okay, it keeps us real. It keeps our faith real. That's one thing I I enjoy about um, interacting with people as I drive Uber once in a while. You know, I'll take these these people to the airport in the mornings between 4 and 6.30. And usually they'll get in the car and a lot of times the conversation comes up and they begin asking, well, what do you do? you do this full-time? No, I have a full-time job. What do you do? And eventually I end up telling them why I pastor a church. You're a pastor a church? Wow, I have a question for you. <laughs> and some of them ask me the craziest questions. And we have a, a good, you know, 20-minute, 30-minute dialogue on the way to the airport about Christ because that's where I make sure it goes. And see, it, it keeps me in touch with what people are thinking. I mean, it'd be easy just to sit in the office all day long and, and just keep all the sinful people away, but that's not what Christ calls us to do. 
Having unbelieving friends keeps us real. Thirdly, they are not shy about their struggles and they ask great questions. Uh, Believers sometimes feel that it's unchristian to ask tough questions. And I don't think that's the case. I think God can handle any question we ask. Now, he may not always give us the answer (laughs) in the way that we want or when we want. But sometimes those things just belong to the Lord and to no one else. But believers should always be the first to ask tough questions. The earliest definition of theology was all the way back in the 11th century. I'll spare you the original language, but basically it meant faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. See, unbelievers, we forget, struggle. They have really tough questions that they want answered. And, and we need to, rather than just dismiss them, we need to pay attention to them. I mean, one, sometimes unbelievers have an issue with the doctrine of hell. When you explain to them there is a place called hell, I mean, they just they can't wrap their mind that God would create such a horrible place. And a lot of believers basically bypass the, the difficulty of that question. And they'll say, well, you know, that's what the Bible says and I believe it. Well, that doesn't really answer the question. They take that kind of mentality. While it's true that the Bible does teach it and that it's true that we should accept it, it's a great difficulty that unbelievers have in acknowledging that. And we need to be able to recognize that. I mean, can you imagine being an unbeliever and even contemplating that there's a place where you're going to end up one day of eternal torment? I mean, the the distress that must bring to the heart of an unbeliever. And I would go one further. It It should bring great distress to our hearts as well. And I think sometimes we've forgotten that. That hell is a reality. But as believers, sometimes we make the doctrine of hell very cold. And so unbelievers ask good questions that believers need to have seriously struggled with and considered. And then the last reason here, because Christ had unbelieving friends. Christ was our example, was he not? He lived here on earth for 30-some years. Christ was on a mission to what? Reconcile the world to himself. He had both unbelieving and believing friends. He sought to win the lost, to disciple the one. There was a great balance in his ministry. I mean, if you want to follow Christ's example, then we need to be willing as individuals and as a church to associate with those in need. The kingdom will soon be here. Let's keep our focus straight like a laser beam. You know, the one thing I want to share with you, the one thing that we will not be able to do in heaven is to bring an unbeliever to Christ. So let's have unbelieving friends now with the intent of bringing them to Christ. I mean, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It has no longer, is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
but on a stand. And it gives light to all, believer and unbeliever, in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we have to have balance in these areas. We should always look to the Word of God and to the Bible to give us that balance. I read some statistics this past week. One survey found that while 62% of non-Christians wanted to talk with a practicing Christian friend, only 34% said that this practice was found among practicing Christians they know personally. Um, 50% of non-Christians said they wanted to dialogue with someone who does not force a conclusion. In other words, they want to talk about it. You see this a lot over in India and even in the Middle East. People want to engage spiritually. They want to talk about it. They're not put off by it. They want to engage you. And so many times, as Americans, we get frustrated because you know, they, the time doesn't end in them bowing the knee and praying in Jesus' name to, to come to Christ. And so we just don't do it at all. A lot of times we have to be reminded that it's, it's important to share our faith. One study said almost half of millennials, 47%, agreed at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith. That it's wrong to do that. Compared with the Gen X generation, it was only 27%. It jumped that much. The boomers were 19%. One out of five non-Christians in North America doesn't even know a Christian. Think about that. One out of five. They don't even know a Christian, let alone speak to them on a regular basis. 20% of non-Christians in North America really do not personally know any Christians at all. One study says 60% of non-Christian population has no relationships with any Christians at all. And worldwide, the, the, the numbers are not better, they're worse. The numbers are much worse. More than 8 in 10 non-Christians do not personally know a Christian on the world scale. And you say, well, Christians make, only, make up about a third of the, the world's population. In the United States, it ranks in the top 10 Christian countries. With 80% of the population identifying as Christian. We know they're probably not, but they identify as Christian. I mean, they ask the question, why so many North American non-Christians don't know Christians? And the answer is immigration. The U.S. attracts more Buddhists, atheists, and agnostic immigrants than any other country in the world. It ranks second for Hindu and Jewish immigrants and seventh for Muslim immigrants. And these are old statistics, by the way, too. See, we obviously need to address how we think and act as a church in our society today. And when we speak of the church, 
we're often referring to this building where we meet, <laughs> uh, where we gather for worship. We do that when we invite, oh, come to my church. Well, what are you saying? You're saying come to this building. I, I want to share with you this morning, this building is not the church. <laughs> it's a place where the church gathers, clearly. The church is that universal body made up of every person who has trusted Jesus Christ by faith and has been born again into the family of God. That's what the church is. What we're sitting in here today is not a sanctuary. If you're saved here today, you're the sanctuary of God. Do you understand that? Read again with me, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The word temple there refers not to the the place of the temple, but it refers to the Holy of Holies. It refers to the place where God dwells. And what Paul was trying to communicate to the Corinthians is that they are the dwelling place of the Almighty God. And that's true of every one of us. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of a believer, making their bodies a holy place for the dwelling of God's special presence. That's the Holy Spirit. It resides in believers. It points to the new nature of the believer's bodies. That's why the believer's bodies are called sanctified. They're called holy. They're made in union with Christ. And what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand is when a person engages in sexual immorality, that immorality runs contrary to that new nature in Christ, that new identity of his body. The Christian has been redeemed for good works, Ephesians 2.10 tells us. So we ought to use our bodies for what? Good deeds, for works of righteousness, not for sin. I mean, that's a very sobering realization when you think about it. Somehow we have the opinion that what we do has no effect on our spirituality. Now, it's true that what we do doesn't have any effect on our eternal salvation. But I think it does have a grave effect on our spirituality. If you are saved, God lives within you. Therefore, everywhere you go, Everything you do, everything that touches you, in effect, what? Touches God. That's why Paul tells these Corinthians that they're God's temples. They're Christians. They're they're, they're God's temple. And it appears that they were using their bodies for immoral purposes and were defiling their temple. I mean, in Corinth, there was a temple of Diana. We did this in the introduction to this book. Diana was a, a goddess of sex and love. In their culture. And in her temple, there were over a thousand female priestesses. And as part of their worship, you would go and you would have relations with these female prostitutes, basically. And many in the church of Corinth were used to that. That's what they were saved out of. And so they reasoned that God had saved their souls and that their body was somehow different. They believe that what I do with my body has no impact on my spiritual walk. That's worlds, worlds away from what God's word teaches. When God gave his plans for the tabernacle and later for the temple, 
he set forth in no uncertain terms the plain fact that he demanded purity. Not in only the people that built the temple, but in the materials, in the construction. He went to great lengths to make sure that everything was according to his plan. Because if it wasn't, he was never going to fill it with his glory. God will not fill a dirty temple. A sinful temple. And I want to focus our time, our remaining time, on the concept of Christians being the temple of God. Christians being the temple of God. We'll see how far we go. We've got a couple minutes here. I want to draw some comparisons between these earthly, fleshly temples, these bodies, and the temple that stood in Jerusalem. So your body, God's temple. The first thing I noticed about the temple is that it's a place of dedication. It's a place of dedication. The earthly temple was a place wholly dedicated to God and to his glory. Nothing that was defiled in any way was allowed on the grounds. When something out of the ordinary occurred, God took immediate steps. When someone tried to bring in something that was unholy, God dealt a severe blow. We know the story of Nadab and Abihu back in Leviticus chapter 10. They offered strange fire. These were sons of the priest, Eleazar. And they offered what was called strange fire, something that God didn't prescribe. And what did God do? Did he just close his eyes and go, oh, well, they're just kids? No, he killed them on the spot. That's how serious God takes this place of dedication. The earthly temple was a place set apart for God and his glory. And you know what? The same thing applies for our bodies. As Christians, these earthly bodies we dwell in are set apart for his glory. I mean, according to this text, no one in this room has the right to use his or her body for anything other than that which glorifies the Lord. You say, well, why is that? Because it tells us in verse 19, 20 there that he bought us we're not our own he bought us we were paid for with a price in other words jesus went to calvary paid the price of our sins and when we came to him by faith and we put our faith in his shed blood that covers our sins we entered into a a contract a covenantal relationship with god through christ And in that relationship, he promised to love us, he promised to keep us, he promised to provide grace for us, and ultimately he provided to take us to heaven to spend eternity with him forever. What was our promise? Our promise was to what? Turn from our sin and follow him totally, completely. In truth, when we came to Jesus for salvation, we gave up all claims to our body and what we desire to do with it. Because it does not belong to ourselves, it belongs to the Lord. That should change our mentality about our bodies. So regardless of what we're doing, if it doesn't bring honor and glory to God, the Bible says that what? It's sin. It's sin. You don't have to have a laundry list of things that you're doing or not doing. Romans 14, verse 23, tells us, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what it is, 
What do we do? All for the glory of God. So the temple was a place of dedication. It's also a place of devotion. It's a place where people, men, gathered to worship God. They came to the temple. They glorified the Lord. It was a place where they sang songs, where they worshiped, where prayers were prayed, hands were raised. Isaiah 56, 7 says, These I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house for prayer for all the peoples. And just as the temple was devoted to a place of worship, our body should be devoted to a place of worship. I mean, these Corinthian believers, with their mouths, they acknowledge Jesus Christ clearly. But then with their bodies, they, partu- they, they participated in an immoral activity that dishonored Christ. How can you worship God with your body? Well, presented as a living sacrifice, as we're told to do in Romans 12. Make it prostrate in prayer. Jeremiah 33 tells us that we should call to God and I will answer, he says, and will tell you the great and hidden things that you have not known. Pull your body away from the world for moments of prayer with the Lord. Practice his presence thirdly. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you understand? God will never leave you nor forsake you. He says that, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus said. Never forget that Jesus is ever with you. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, as one of his children, he is there. He is walking right there beside you. He's watching everything you do. Maybe that will prevent us from engaging in activities that would dishonor his name. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us that we should praise him continually. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. See, we need to, as believers, determine in our hearts that nothing, nothing in our lives, no circumstances in life, no bump in the road will stop us from having a thankful heart, a heart of praise before the Lord. The other day when we got the call that our granddaughter jumped down the steps and busted her ankle and had to have surgery. Okay, God, I don't know why you allowed this to happen. I feel bad for Gabby, but you know what? You're teaching her something through this. You're teaching my daughter and, grand, and other grandkids and my son-in-law something through this. You're teaching us as grandparents something through this. Praise him continually. And then fifthly, place your body in his hand for service. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You will yield your body to one master or the other. Either it will be the gods of this world, the world, the flesh, the devil, or it will be the Lord God, creator, almighty. Yield yourself to the Lord, and he will use you for his glory, and he will bless you. Can you honestly say this morning that your body is being used as a house of worship before the Lord? The temple was also a place of duty, a place of duty. 
Things such as the sacrifice, the tithe, the offerings, the prayers were carried out. And these fleshly temples, our bodies are a place where duties for the Lord should be carried out. We need to adopt the same idea, the same mindset as the Apostle Paul, I believe. Even though God was using him to pen the scriptures and to preach the gospel under the mighty manifestation of divine power, Paul still referred to himself as a servant. The word there is literally bond slave. One who has made a conscious decision to give the totality of himself up to Jesus and to his will. A person who relinquishes all claims to self to gain the glory. A person who wishes nothing more than to be exactly what God wants him to be. Nothing less, nothing more. Is your temple that kind of place? Quickly, it's also a place of death. You read through the Old Testament, the scenes in the Old Temple were bloody. Blood everywhere. Every time anyone went to the temple, they were confronted with a death scene. I've been to death scenes where people have taken their own lives or people have been murdered. It's not pretty. That's what people saw every time they went to the temple. And like it or not, men should be confronted with the same scene when they come into contact with God's temples. First Peter one twenty three says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, as a result, you're a brand new creation in Christ. Therefore, what are we expected to be confronted with? We're expected to be dead to our old way of life. Our old way of life should be a death scene. And the way of life held so dearly by this world system That's why Paul tells in Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. If these, you too, in these, you too once walked, but you were living in them, when you were living in them, but now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We need to die to ourselves on a daily basis. doesn't mean we don't have fun. doesn't mean we don't enjoy the Christian life. It just means that our will comes under the will of God. And lastly, it's a place of display. When God saw the temple standing there, when men saw the temple standing there in Jerusalem, they were reminded of God. Just like when you go over to the Middle East today and you see those temples, you're reminded of God. It doesn't even matter what religion's the temple is. You, you think of God. You think of a higher power. Well, our bodies as the temples of God are to witness to the world that we have been redeemed. Every time the world sees a child of God, they see the manifestation of the power and the grace of the Almighty God. That should be true. That's why Paul referred to the Corinthian believers as his epistle in 2 Corinthians 3.2. Paul's telling them that everywhere they turn, everywhere they go, they are living, breathing, 
loving letters to humanity. And the letters say to the sinners, what God has done here, he can do for you. I pray that your life is a display, a display for Christ. Because whether you like it or not, you're a witness. You may be a good witness, you may be an honoring witness, or you may be a very poor witness. Paul said in Philippians 1.27, Oh, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Are you dedicated to Christ this morning? Are you using your body as a place of worship and devotion to him? Are you fully executing your duties before the Lord? Have you put those things to death that were previously in your life? And is your life a display to the saving grace of God? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you. Lord, that we do have grace. We do have your love. We do have your forgiveness available to us through Christ. And Lord, I pray for us as believers here this morning that we would take seriously this walk, this Christian walk that you've called us to. It's not something to just joke around about. It's something that we should be continually edifying ourselves, seeking to edify our bodies, our spiritual minds through the teaching and hearing of your word, through the reading of your word, through fellowship with the saints. Lord, sometimes I think we just think of our Christianity as something we do on a Sunday, a weekend event that happens once a week. God forbid it should affect the rest of our week. But Lord, that's what true faith does. True faith permeates all of our lives. So that whether we're at work or whether we're in church, we're living for you. We're doing what's right before you. I pray for any believers here today who may be struggling in the area of immorality, thought life, maybe even physically. Lord, I pray that you would show them that your word can cleanse their heart and their minds that they can stop seeking those things and seek things that are above, that they can live lives that are victorious in Christ. Help them to turn from that sin and turn to you. Thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, we pray for any unbelievers who may be here today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts their need of a Savior. Lord, that you would show them your grace, your love, your kindness. Because we know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And Lord, I pray that you would do that convicting work as only you can. And Lord, if they need to speak to anyone, I pray that they would approach one of us after the service. Nothing else just to clarify, maybe some questions that they might have. Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing in us and through us. We pray and we ask your blessing upon our fellowship time across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.